Hi, I'm Haley. And I'm Sydney. And this week's episode on marine ecology education is, is to, to dive, dive for. Hey, Sydney, how's it going? Hello. It's going well. How are you? I'm good. Can't complain. Uh, it has been a crazy week, and I have the most random thing that I just realized. Um, so I was texting Lawrence, and I called him a couple days ago, and he was like, babe, like, where's my dive watch charger? And I was like, oh my god, I forgot to tell you, I opened my suitcase and I have it. I brought it from Florida from like the three days that I was there. And he was like, oh my God, like, what am I going to do? Blah, 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 blah. And I was like, I don't know. I'm so sorry. He was like, I guess I have to order a new one. So this whole thing went by. He just texted me right now and goes, wait, I'm really confused. And I said, why? And he goes, because I just found my dive watch charger and it's here. And I was like, what? And so I sent him a picture of this charger that I have here that is a Garmin DiveWatch charger. And he sent yeah. me a picture of two Garmin DiveWatch chargers in his house. I guess he's his original one and then the one he bought off Amazon. And he goes, whose DiveWatch charger do you have? So <laughs> if someone that I know is missing a DiveWatch charger, let me know because uh, I guess I have it. I have no idea where it came from. I don't own a Garmin, so... Oh my gosh, I can't even think of, like, other people that I know right now that wear a Garmin. No, like, a lot of our dive friends wear shearwaters. Yeah. Not a clue. Oh my gosh. It's like, it's like mismatching socks or something, like you just came across a random one. Yeah, yep. So I have somebody's missing sock. Come, come get your sock. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, now you can um, maybe sell it, make a little money. I don't know how much <laughs> those are. Garmin Dive Watch Charger for sale. <laughs> yeah, hit us up. Cool. So we'll do our news piece. Do you want to do your news piece now? I was going to say, who wants to learn about crazy tiny sharks? Uh, yes, I would love that. Teach me about them. Okay. Okay. <laughs> So I was sitting in my office this week and I got like an email update from the university with all the news pieces that have come out recently connected to the university. And this one caught my eye. It's titled Pencils with Teeth. Meet the tiny cookie cutter shark that attacked a catamaran off of cans. A shark? Did it hurt the catamaran? (laughs) So we're going to get into it, but yes. (laughs) I was like, what? So cookie cutter sharks are super small and um, somehow they damaged a catamaran off the coast of Cannes this week. And these sharks have been described as pencils with teeth and they have a history of trying to eat inanimate objects, including submarines. So don't know where... The pencils with teeth, does that mean it's the size of a pencil? I guess they must be that length. I always thought they were bigger, but I guess they're super tiny. Yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah. <laughs> so they said three people were rescued from an inflatable vessel. And um, <laughs> the Russian Geographic Society 
um, which was involved with the sailors doing a round-the-world expedition, they confirmed that the hull was attacked by cookie-cutter sharks in the Coral Sea, which is right where I am, off the coast. <laughs> so you just have, I'm just picturing like a swarm of cookie-cutter sharks attacking a boat. A, a big boat. I mean, catamarans are not small yeah. boats. And people had to be rescued from the... Yeah! <laughs> Yeah, I sailed through the Coral Sea, avoided all of the reefs that I could have wrecked my boat on, but got eaten by cookie cutter sharks, so... Yeah, there's yeah, also, there's like, also like, <laughs> great white great sharks, white sharks crocodiles, crocodiles, like, like all these other these big other things big you would things think would be, like, would be a, like threat, a threat, and then you have, then you have these little, these little cookie, cutter cookie cutter sharks, sharks that also that usually also live, usually in, the live in the deep. Just showing up to eat a boat. I love it, I love it. They're They're taking a page out of the yeah. Orcas book. That's what I thought of, too. Marine life is fighting back these days. That's all I gotta say. Now I just need the corals to fight back. That would be cool. If, yeah. or, or just to fight at all. That would be good. Um, so marine biologists that have looked at this incident say that the attack was a classic case of mistaken identity, which we know is a big thing when it comes to shark interactions with people. Um, and they just emphasize that this is a super cool little shark. Um, they actually glow in the dark, and they have a very big attitude despite their tiny size. So I thought this was a cute little story. Also sad for the people on the boat, <laughs> but um, just a fun little story to share today. That's a good one. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, well, on to the interview portion of the episode. And this week, we have someone who's here with me, special guest. Would you want to introduce yourself? Uh, yes, yeah, so uh, my name is Victoria Mann, and I'm the Education Coordinator at CCMI, or the Central Caribbean Marine Institute. Nice. Awesome. And will you tell us your pronouns and where you're from and uh, how you got to where you are now? Uh, yeah, so my pronouns are she, her, and uh, I'm from originally the UK, uh, an area called Peterborough, which isn't well known in the UK, so people <laughs> probably don't know where that is. Uh, but I spent the last four and a half years living in the Cayman Islands. Uh, so I started off in Grand Cayman, which is the larger of the three islands, um, and then spent the last two and a half years in Little Cayman, which is my favorite island of the three because it's super tiny and it's kind of like living in a village with only 160 people so everyone knows everyone and says hello to each other which is super nice and it's really untouched uh beautiful nature which is definitely my favorite thing about this place yeah definitely agree I've only been here obviously as you guys know like three months so far but uh it is it is so beautiful here and I I don't think I've ever been quite so immersed in nature and still been like in a I wouldn't say a city but like in a, a civilization you know like usually when I'm mm -hmm. this close to nature I'm like in a national park or I'm like in a forest hiking um, but here I literally walk outside of my front door and I like step into sand which is insane to me and I go to the bathroom in the middle of the night at the bathhouse and I can look up and see the entire Milky Way, which blows my mind every single time that it happens. Um yeah, I just it's it's so crazy. So I agree. The nature here is really cool. It is stunning. The the stars at the moment as well, like 
I take my dog for a walk on the the runway at nighttime, which mm-hmm. is crazy. I don't know anywhere else in the world where you can just walk on a <laughs> runway because there's no like fencing for it. Yeah. And usually I'm just walking him and then I just have to lie down on the runway to take a minute to like look at the stars because they're just so incredible right now. Yeah. Also, like daily frigate birds <laughs> all the time. And I I love them. I've never loved a bird so much in my life. Although the boobies are a close I was just going to say, have you found them? Yeah, yeah. Red-footed boobies and the, I don't know if it's, I don't think it's the Magnificent Frigate, but whatever it, it is. It is the Magnificent. Is it? I yeah. can't believe you yeah. chose the Magnificent Frigate as your favorite bird. Dude, yesterday or the other day, we were dropping people off at the airport and we saw frigates flying overhead and one of them had their red pouch extended. I don't know if this blew anyone else's mind, but I was freaking out. I was like, look at its pouch, its throat. And everyone was like, it's a bird. And I was like, but it's so cool. Like you only see this on (laughs) nature documentaries. This is insane. When Next time you go to Grand Cayman or when you're leaving Little Cayman, go like take Lawrence or something, make a little trip out of it and go, I forget the name of the restaurant, but on Grand, Alec and I went and fed the frigate birds like squid for their uh, daily feeding <laughs> yeah i saw that i i mentioned it to a couple people who lived on grand and everyone was like we don't feed frigate birds on grand and i was like okay but someone does like i don't i don't know who yeah. it is but someone does usually usually i'm against feeding wildlife but these guys just come here every single day asking for food so it's kind of already they've already been habituated to it so i was like okay fine i'll feed a bird I'm really surprised that's your, do you know about their relationship with the booby buds and you're still your favorite uh, frigate? I'm not sure that I know enough, but I don't want to know. They're just, <laughs> I think I like the frigate birds because they are, they just seem like this thing, they seem so exotic to me. That's what it is, is that like I see them on nature documentaries. I see like, I can just, I look at them and I hear David Attenborough, right? Like, and it makes me feel like I'm in this, like, I'm in the Galapagos or, like, in the Amazon rainforest. Like, I feel like I'm in this completely unattainable, exotic place. But, like, I'm not. I'm just, like, I mean, I guess I am. But, like, I don't know. It's It just <laughs> reminds me of how how different and, like, how out there this place is, right? Like, it, I don't know. I feel like I'm going to have to do a David Attenborough speech about the frigates that's maybe going to change your mind about your love for the frigates. <laughs> okay, I'm ready. You can tell me. So the magnificent frigate birds here in Little Cayman have what's called a kleptoparasitic relationship with the red-footed booby birds. So the red-footed booby birds are really well adapted for going really deep and catching fish. They have webbed feet and waxy feathers, so they can go like up to 30 feet deep in the ocean to get fish. But the magnificent frigates don't have those good adaptations, so they can't actually get wet, otherwise they get stuck. So they just skim the surface. So this means red-footed booby birds really good at catching fish, magnificent frigates not so good. So they actually have this learned behavior where the magnificent frigates will wait for the red-footed booby birds to come back to the island after going out miles and miles to fish and they will bully and harass the red-footed booby birds. I've seen them like grabbing them by their um, feet while they're like trying to fly until the point where the red-footed booby birds 
bring up their fish and then the frigate will swoop down and catch it and they do this every evening if you stand on the shore at sunset you'll see all the frigates waiting for the booby birds and they all like as a group will attack the red-footed booby birds until they get their food Mm -hmm. but it's a really cool behavior that it's learned so you'll see baby magnificent frigate birds getting kind of trained this but they use sticks to learn this behavior so it is cool but it also makes me always like love the red-footed booby birds more because they're like the underdogs yeah yeah well maybe i have to change my mind maybe i do um to make it worse the magnificent frigate birds also eat smaller seabirds so they're just they're just all around bullies yeah, but they're, they're really cool bullies. Does that make it better? <laughs> <laughs> I think the other thing that I really loved about frigates, and I recently, from someone, honestly, it might have been you, learned that I don't think this is true. But when I was young, I heard that um, the first, like, the frigate birds are a symbol for sailors because they are one of the birds that flies farthest from land but nests on land every night. And so you, as you're like sailing up to an area, sailors who had been at sea for months and months and months would see the frigate bird and know they must be close to land because it would be the furthest bird out. But every night they had to make it back to shore. So you can't be that far from land, right? And so that was always Mm -hmm. like the first sign to sailors that they were approaching land. But then someone recently told me that it actually isn't the frigate bird. It's like the booby i think actually so like maybe i've really got this love affair for frigates all wrong (laughs) but but that's okay (laughs) i i know the booby birds used to sit on the sailors like masts Mm -hmm. and they used to when they were really hungry they just the booby birds were kind of seen as dumb birds that Mm -hmm. didn't know to fear humans so they just kind of flub them over the head and then they'd eat the red-footed booby bird so it was like a source of food for for sailors like a really important source of food was just these mm-hmm. i think they called them dum dum or something that was like a oh. that was where the name came from for the red-footed booby birds oh that's so sad well poor dudes vic you literally just did what you do best which <laughs> is educate people um so as Vic said, she's a marine educator, a marine science educator here at CCMI, and a very good one. Obviously, it just taught me a whole bunch of stuff. Um, but how did you get into doing that? Like, how did you decide you wanted to be in marine education? Uh, I feel like, I don't know if I decided or it just kind of happened, which is probably a terrible answer. Um, so, you know, I always knew that I wanted to do something to help the environment, uh, but I didn't really know how to do that or what was my like passion. Like that was a real struggle for me leaving university was working out if I wanted to go down the research route or the education route or like how, what kind of route I wanted to go down. Um, and then I just kind of kept falling into education jobs and I kept falling into situations where I was working with children uh and I think I was in denial for a while where I was just like I don't know why I keep getting all these jobs and my CV is perfectly tailored to being an educator uh and then eventually I was kind of like this I guess this is what I want to do so it's the the weirdest route ever that it was more 
it just kind of happened. I, I didn't kind of do a step-by-step career decision. Uh, it was more I started off as a lab technician in a school. And then because I was in that school environment, I started an environmental club in the school and then got teaching experience. Um, and I never really liked teaching in a school that much, which I think put me off being an educator. I didn't really like the teaching these things so people can get a grade and being a teacher is very stressful Mm -hmm. and doing your teacher training year is horrendous is the only way I can describe it it's just so much work um but then it was when I got this job here that I I realized this is really what I want to do because I get to teach what I'm passionate about and that is what makes it completely different to any form of teaching is if you're teaching solely what you're passionate about and it really does feel like this is kind of like my life goal or mission uh is to try and make an impact and try and make a difference and I really feel like educating other people is is definitely the way to do that like I I love that I get to introduce students to coral reefs like that they've never seen them before the amount of like even the local students right up to the international university students that come here getting to see the impact that the experience they have here at CCMI is is just absolutely incredible and uh, it's very rewarding and fulfilling uh so I can't even remember what the question was it's okay <laughs> you you gave me chills I loved it that was a great yeah. answer <laughs> Um, what would you say then drew you to the water? Like, where did your love of the ocean start? Um, again, I'm going to give you a terrible answer in that growing up, I hated the ocean because I lived in the UK (laughs) and it was just like, we'd go to the beach once a year in the North of England where it was freezing cold and your parents would be like, just go in and you'd be like blue and freezing cold. And there was nothing to see when I like I wouldn't have goggles on or anything I'd just kind of be splashing around getting whacked by waves and I definitely didn't love the ocean growing up um and even diving I at university kind of felt like many of the marine biology students like I only did one module on marine biology and many of the students that did do straight marine biology was because they could afford to do all the scuba Mm -hmm. diving trips that were international Uh. so I had this kind of like felt a bit begrudged that I was like it felt inaccessible to me financially. And so I I was kind of like, oh, that's what the, the rich kids do that have the money to do it. And so it wasn't actually until I was older where I had a job, I then had an income. And one of my colleagues was like, you have to try diving. Um, and so I did my open water in the UK, which also does not sell diving to people because <laughs> it was a freezing cold quarry. I had like a really old dry suit that they had to like duct tape the neck in to make it work because it was so old and then I had to like punch the dunk valve to get the air out of it so it was like nightmare scenario of learning how to dive I couldn't see anything like my hands in front of me and I was really cold because water would still leak in and then they'd rip the duct tape off after each dive and I'd have like this huge red mark so my first experience wasn't great but then I moved to the Cayman Islands which is where I I recommend everyone does their diving abroad. I get why people do it abroad because as soon as I went in the water, it was just like, it is life-changing. And I love that I get to help other people experience that because going out and seeing the reefs in the Cayman Islands is just 
absolutely mind-blowing it is one of those things that you you never forget and I completely understand why everyone is obsessed with diving now and obsessed with the ocean because as soon as you experience those things it, like you're not going to forget that you're not going to forget how you feel when you see a coral reef for the first time um it, it is just phenomenal so I definitely it, my love for everything came a lot later in life uh and I've previously felt a bit concerned that like a lot of other people in this field have been like diving since they were nine or something and have all these stories and uh so there was a point I felt very behind um but I think you just got to remember everyone's going at their own pace and it, it doesn't really matter. It's like, I'm really happy that I've had the experiences that I've had. Yeah, no, that, that brings yeah. up some really good points, honestly. Like, I think something that we don't talk about a lot in general, and we haven't really touched on very much in the podcast, is that there is totally, like, a challenge associated with marine science studies having to do with income level and it it's like something that we see in the states as well as people who can afford to go to school for marine science and afford all the dive training and afford all the trips and afford like those tend to be some of the like more qualified individuals coming right out of school within the field because they've done all of these things um and and oftentimes like even paid internships and things like that like those are that's what I was just going to say. Yeah, definitely. They're they're challenging things to attain for people who don't have the means to do that. And so it creates a field that um, in a lot of ways lacks diversity, right? It's, it's a lot of people who come from very similar backgrounds uh, who make it into this field. And so I think like, one thing that we would all love to see more of is just like more diversity, not just ethnic diversity or linguistic diversity, but also like diversity of income level within marine science, because- as we've said before, marine science is only as good as the scientists and the the educators who make up the field. So I think yeah. having low diversity only does a disservice to us as a field. That yeah. does make me like bring up like one of the things I love about CCMI is our Young Environmentalist Leadership course. Uh, so we do this every single year. Uh, we've been doing it, oh, I don't actually remember when we started, but a long time. Um, and this program actually means that uh, we get 10 local Caymanian students or people that have grown up here in the Cayman Islands. Um, and it's like fully funded that they get their open water, their advanced open water and their rescue diving certification. Wow. On top of that, they then get 10 days here in Little Cayman. Uh, they get to stay at CCMI. And it's like, it's just such an incredible program uh, because we teach them interview skills, CV workshops, we get them to network with all of these people. So we're really helping people who might not be able to financially afford all this dive training as we understand how expensive it is because um, all of those certifications are like almost hundreds of dollars. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then we help yeah. them if later on they want to do their dive master. We also kind of provide opportunities to support that. So we really help local Caymanians and people who've grown up on these islands so that they can then go into the industry um and it is a really fantastic program that uh, I'm definitely proud to to work on because I think we need more of that we need more opportunities uh for people to kind of bridge that gap uh in this industry mm -hmm. doesn't CCMI also have internships that prioritize um like they try and choose locals for those internships 
Yeah, so we have our Ocean Science Scholarship um, internship program, uh, which is really fantastic uh, because that is a set of money that is given to us by the Edmund F. Virginia B. Ball Foundation, which is one of our incredible uh, funders who sponsor a lot of our programs and huge shout out to them. Uh, but they specify that that uh, is specifically for Caymanians uh, and people who've our permanent residents or have grown up here in the Cayman Islands. Uh, so it's it's really fantastic that uh, it's it has to be a, a Caymanian so they get that opportunity, which is really amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. And then another thing, um, I guess in the US, um, I immediately thought of the NSF REUs. Um, so for anyone looking to get into research or do uh, basically an internship in marine science or even any other STEM field, um, the NSF REU program prioritizes um, applications from minority groups. So I know that's like a really good way to get involved in research if you want it funded, need a stipend, need some support. So I would definitely encourage people to check that out if they are in the U.S. and looking for um, a research-based program or internship. Um, so another one that some of you may know about loosely who live in the States is called the Hauling Scholarship. And that's something that I got to participate in as an undergrad. It is an incredible program, incredible opportunity, allows you to work at any NOAA facility of your choice for 10 weeks. And they also provide you, they pay you during that time, provide a living stipend, and they pay you a $10,000 scholarship as a junior and $10,000 scholarship as a senior. And on top of that, they pay for you to go to two different conferences to present your research from the 10-week internship in the following year. So lots of really, really, really good networking opportunities and career and education opportunities there. Um, but specifically, they also have a program underneath Hollings um, that's called the Educational Partnership Program with Minority Serving Institutions. So EPP is like the acronym that they use for it. And so you'll see um, NOAA Hauling Scholars and EPP Scholars. And so the EPP Scholars that are selected um, come from these minority serving institutions and they're given priority for a subset of the awards every year, um, as well as obviously being able to win any of the like main awards as well. Um, but there is at least a subset that is reserved for minority serving institutions. And I think that's really, really cool. It it increases the diversity of people within our field and getting early career uh, opportunities. Which then will allow them to get further education positions, like getting into a lab for a master's or a PhD. So it definitely is a barrier, but I'm glad that we have these uh, organizations that are trying to fix that. Yeah, for sure. Um, so back to you, Vic. <laughs> now that we've <laughs> bowled over the conversation, um, can you tell us a little bit about like what kind of education background? I know you said you kind of started diving a little bit in college and you weren't in, you took one marine biology course, but you didn't take the same as everybody else who was in marine science. So what did you get your degree in and what did that look like? Uh, so my degree was just a straight biology degree. Uh, and then in my final year, I did one module on um, marine science. Uh, and it wasn't actually uh, at university that I did diving. It was way after that once I got a job and then okay. had an income, I did that. Um, so uh, yeah, I've got a, a 
biology degree from the University of Chester in the UK. And then I did my teacher training uh, in Grand Cayman when I was working at a school there. So that's a PGC. Oh, and dive master. Sorry. <laughs> Probably pretty important for the job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, did you do your dive master in Cayman? Yes, I actually did it here in Little Cayman uh, with Little Cayman Divers, uh, which I love those guys if you're ever coming to Little Cayman. And uh, I highly recommend that dive company uh, because they are the most wonderful human beings ever. Um, so massive shout out to Doug as he hugely helped me with the gaining my dive master certification. I think I got a record for the longest to do a dive master because... I was doing it on weekends around uh, this job, so uh, it took over a year just to to get my dive master certification. Um, but yeah, it was it was really good, and I'm I'm glad I finished that now because uh, <laughs> it put me off diving for a little bit when I was like diving with my job during the week, and then on weekends I was going out diving. I got real exhausted, but. Um, I, I, I love diving again now. I've had a, a little break from doing quite such intense diving. <laughs> That's really impressive, though, that you did them at the same time. Yeah, impressive or stupid, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so you keep mentioning diving during the week. How does diving intersect with your job here at CCMI? Uh, one of the my absolute favorite things about this job is the variation in this job. So we have a variety of different groups. So we can have uh, primary school level groups coming here, uh, secondary school or right up to university level groups. And so there is a, a huge amount of variation because if we have a primary school group, it is very different from when we have a university level group. Uh, and we have a mix of snorkeling and diving groups. So uh, it, it really varies, which I love about this job is one minute you're doing campfires with little children and singing songs and teaching them very basic stuff about corals. Uh, and then the next week you're teaching coral ID and survey methods to university students. So um, my normal week is different every single week. It, it really varies. And so we will have periods where it's really dive intensive and we're going out every day and taking groups out. Um, and then I also have assisted a lot with the research that happens at CCMI. Um, I kind of arrived at a, a really good time where, uh, well, COVID, so maybe not a good time, but it was a good time for me professionally <laughs> that there was a kind of skeleton crew at CCMI during that period while we didn't have full programs, uh, which allowed me the opportunity to help a lot with research and education. So um, whenever there is a research thing that uh, we don't have an education group in, uh, I've kind of proven myself as a good asset to the research team. So I often get to help out, which is really nice. And that is then obviously... As you will definitely know, we have really intensive dive uh, parts when there is a research going on. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's it's fun. I I very much have grown to love the chaos of field weeks or like field intense <sighs> days or whatever. Um, it it took me a while to get here, and I think I think truly I like a lot of the diving during our master's. So Sydney did her master's degree with me. We both came oh, nice. out of the same lab. Um, but a lot of the diving during our master's was like very intense. And I, I don't think I was expecting it to be as challenging as it was. I think I kind of thought like, I have a lot of dive experience and a lot of experience in high current yeah. and, 
And I, I didn't expect it to be as challenging as it was. So I think at first it really caught me off guard. I think since like having years of experience doing that and like, you know, operating the boats and getting to kind of see all different aspects of that and then coming out here and seeing a different aspect of scientific diving where there isn't insane ripping currents and, but you still like have, you know, it's still Christmas tree diving. You still have like all these different tools on you and oh yeah tasks to accomplish underwater. And I think I finally learned to like kind of enjoy the chaos of it. It, it took me a while to get to the point that I actually like the chaos of it, but I think it's fun now. It like keeps you on your toes and, and you have to be like, ah, oh, okay, I, I dropped my pencil or I forgot my pencil, like <laughs> problem solving. What can I do underwater to still accomplish the task? You know, it's, it's become very fun for me. Well, it might just be a little Cayman thing because when I was there at CCMI, that's where I started my scientific diving and I was like, this is amazing. Um, so that's the favorite place I've done scientific diving. Um, yeah, a little different. <laughs> Are you telling me when I leave, it's just over? I'm not going to enjoy it anymore? No, 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 no. There's there's just like a little a little Cayman factor in there, like a little... <laughs> A little extra greatness. <laughs> Being on a beautiful world-class reef with like an incredible wall yeah. hundreds of feet away from you within visibility because the visibility is hundreds of feet and the water is gin clear probably doesn't have any effect on how much I love it, Sydney. So, uh, yeah, I love all of our CCMI interviews just because it it takes me back. I feel like I'm back on the island. So Vic, you mentioned earlier that um, you kind of struggled to get into diving in college just because it seemed inaccessible due to the, due to the price. Um, would you say there's any other challenges that you faced in the field? And if so, how did you overcome those challenges? Okay, I've kind of got two challenges. I'd say my biggest challenge was actually getting into the field. I'd say I really struggled after university. I found it really difficult to get into any kind of conservation or environmental job. Um, I applied for loads of jobs and I feel like that first gap of university to employment is really challenging. Um, and if I could go back, I always give this advice to people that really make the most of your time at university, do the internships in your summer, try and get any experience while you're at university because when you're fresh out of university, and you're like needing a job because you need an income after university, it is super hard to then get in the field because everyone wants you to have experience before you can get those jobs. So I feel like that was my initial challenge was I got a lot of kind of rejection and I felt like there was definitely times I really wanted to give up. And I remember speaking to a lot of different people in like the environmental kind of fields and they always warn you that it's going to be hard and you might have to have multiple jobs and it's going to be challenging. But I feel like it it still shocks you how challenging it is to actually get into the field. Uh, and I'm so grateful that I didn't give up and I kept trying and uh, that I eventually made it. Like that moment when you get told that you've got this job that you so badly want, uh, like when I found out I got the job uh, and I got in my car afterwards, I like FaceTimed my entire family and was just like crying with happiness. Like it was such a breakthrough moment. Uh, and so I just kind of want to encourage people to keep going and not give up because I 
kind of heard different people say this throughout and it, it does help when someone's saying that because you definitely have those moments where you're like someone has a PhD and all this experience and they can't even get this paid internship yeah. like it can be crazy um but you've just got to keep looking and kind of not give up hope um and hopefully eventually everything kind of works out and I feel like I spoke to so many people where I'd ask them what they did and it was just kind of fluke or it just kind of happened and I found that so frustrating because I was like well how do I make that happen for me where there's just everything aligns and it all works out and for me COVID kind of was one of the things that made everything align and work out for me like I had a really difficult issue with my previous job but if I hadn't gone through that I would have felt like I had to be really loyal to that company and stay with that company but because I had issues and I was going through a hard time it made it so easy for me to then be like I've just got offered this incredible dream job of mine I'm gonna take it so it is amazing how it does feel like things happen for a reason and it it is a huge challenge is actually just getting into the field um and getting your foot in the door and getting on that career ladder but um man is it incredible when you get there and you get to do what you're really passionate about uh, and I do absolutely love this job uh, and that kind of comes up to my second challenge is when you're really passionate about what you do and you love what you do and you fully believe in the mission of your organization. Um, and it's a nonprofit organization. So sometimes there are constraints with it staffing wise. And but if you really love it, it's so hard to kind of switch off and to kind of stop at the end of the day. Uh, and that thing that uh, I like is if you find something you love as a job, you'll never have to work a day of your life. But the reality of it is if you find something you love as a job, you will work every single day of your life because you're so passionate about it and you want it to work and you'll work over and late because you really want to make sure, like for me, I want to make sure every single education group we have has that life-changing impact. Uh, it's weird, but I see as an achievement when we have university students that are like crying at the end of their trip because they've had such an amazing experience. Or I've taught a primary school kid that's grown up on these beautiful islands and they've never seen the reefs and I get to take them, teach them to swim and help them see the amazingness that is uh, their islands. It's it's so fulfilling and so rewarding, but it does kind of come at a cost to your yourself because you just give your all. Um, so yeah, I guess trying to find a good work-life balance is, I don't have a solution to that. I'm very bad at that. (laughs) (laughs) I need solutions. (laughs) Me too. I feel you. But I, I think that's a really good point and something that we've mentioned before, but like always stands reiterating and like coming from other people too, is that it is so hard to find balance when you're in a job for passion and it's also that's also one of the reasons i think that marine science can be can often be underpaid right it's like if you love what you do and you're doing something and the same is true of the dive industry like when you love what you do yeah and you just you would show up to do it anyway right like me i'm i'm going diving anyway i'm going diving whether someone's paying me to go diving or not which means it's really easy for for an employer to say like well would you do it for this much money or whatever like oh well you should do it after five or what you know it's easy for that tension to kind of be there 
we're on to the the very serious questions. What is your best dive, snorkel, or water-related story? And it can be from working or just like recreational. Like every time I get to take students to Compass Caves, which is the the dive site um, or or snorkel site as well, we take kids snorkeling there. It just the moment when people get to experience that for the first time I think is just so incredible to be there and be a witness to that uh so like there's kind of like a hard pan like um sandy area uh and then you kind of just keep going out and it's quite a distance so sometimes it's a it's a challenge getting there with especially the the year five and six students takes a bit of motivation but I'm like you you gotta you gotta see this uh and then eventually we we get out and it's just kind of like slowly you start seeing a few corals and then there's this mini wall and it is just like the marine life just hits you like there is so many healthy vibrant corals and so much fish life and it's just it is amazing and it's amazing every time I do that I I probably been there over a hundred times just taking all the different groups out there and then even I've got weekends off I'll I'll go there because I just love it um but for me it's just so amazing when you get to see these like year five and year six students especially with our scholarship program that we have for government primary school students and we get to take them out there uh it just their reaction to witnessing that for the first time is just the most rewarding uh, and heartwarming thing. And even the university students as well, that can be their first experience as well. And even people who have seen incredible coral reefs, our ones are just kind of next level, if I say so. Like, it is just such an impactful moment that I, I absolutely love being a part of. Uh, so yes I saw a hammerhead shark and that was really cool and I, I've seen other cool things on dives but I feel like for me that is the thing that uh, I don't think it matters how old I get I will never forget the moments I've had where I've got to kind of give students that first experience <laughs> you're like literally gonna make me cry that's so sweet what do what do the kids say do they ever like so what do they yeah, what is their reaction? Um, I usually try and encourage them not to scream because we have dive boats around and I'm mm-hmm. like worried that that will look like they're in distress. So I'm usually trying to kind of keep the excitement down. Um, but it is very much just like, oh, wow, look at that. Wow. And like a lot of kind of like amazement. But the other side of that is that I've also had students that have been like crying and upset and stressed and scared because they're suddenly like, oh my gosh, there's all these fish and this is terrifying and I've never been this far out in the ocean and I've never seen this before. Um, and a, a really impactful moment for me was this was one girl was like, I just want to go back. And everyone else was like, this is amazing and this is incredible. And this one girl was like, clinging to me and being like, take me back to the shore. And I was like, what, what is it that you're scared of? Because I was like, look at everyone else. Everyone else is amazed by all of this. Like, what is it that you're scared of? And she literally said the sentence that her dad made her terrified of the ocean. And I was like, mind blown that this child had actually said that it wasn't her fear, it was her parents' fear that she had got. And so I kind of just was like, got her to take a minute. And then she did like enjoy it and continue with the snorkel and love it. And I kind of was like, you've got nothing to be afraid of like here, but like, you're with me, you're safe, you've got a pool noodle, you've got a float. Pool noodles are incredible. 
they are so good. Um, but yeah, um, it mixed reactions. You do have the students that, that get really freaked out. Um, and then the really good ability ones, we managed to get them all the way out to the deep pool, which you'll mm. notice that is, that is a swim. But um, they always, in their like post-program feedback, say that the most amazing thing was getting to see that huge drop-off where like it, it is incredible. Right. Um, but then sometimes they like see a Caribbean reef shark for the first time and then mixed reactions again. You have usually they, <laughs> they start the program and they're terrified of the idea of seeing a shark or um, just terrified of the ocean in general. And it's so amazing that we we only have these students here for three days is the marine ecology course program. And over that three days, you literally have them starting wanting all the life jackets and clinging to you and then like terrified of the thought of seeing a shark and then on the last day they're like just so passionate and so excited and like you're trying to keep them all together after that <laughs> they're like all just chasing after all these amazing things they're seeing and so excited that they got to see all this so um yeah that's that's kind of a very long-winded that's good <laughs> I love that your favorite thing that you've ever seen in the water is people's excitement and yeah. I think that's great I think that like a lot of us feel that way too and that's one of the things that I love about uh, being a dive instructor I always tell people that the greatest parts about being a dive instructor are watching people like discover this love for the ocean and discover yeah. that they can do this thing and and be exposed to the animals underwater and they'll look at things that I think are just like very like oh a trumpet fish like I've seen a trillion trumpet fish right and they'll be like where was this thing and it was long and skinny and it had like colors on it and I'm like well, you are so excited about this thing that I've seen a million times but it, it reminds you of the novelty of what you're looking yeah. at right like and then the other favorite thing that I have about um being a dive instructor is mooching off of beginner divers incredible luck with seeing the most insane oh, yeah. things um so I always tell my students like what are you manifesting? Because I'm mooching off your, your good vibes today. So, um, yeah, I like my first ocean dive ever. I saw a manta ray, like insane, unbelievable. So in grand, um, and like I've dive or like students and stuff all the time who they'll go on their first dive ever. And then like, we'll have an incredible seahorse interaction or insane eagle rays, like swooping up over your face and like, I don't know just like crazy things and they always have like oh an octopus came out and like showed us its eggs in its den or whatever and I'm just like what like what how how do so I mooch hardcore off the first diver's luck and I I do live for that <laughs> yeah I had very green divers like very new to diving and that was the one and only time I've seen a hammerhead shark and yep. I don't feel like they knew oh how incredible it was and how crazy I was doing all the signals and pointing yeah uh, and I feel so bad still that my colleague didn't see it so this entire <laughs> university group who'd only just got certified got to see this amazing hammerhead shark and she didn't get there in time to see it classic so another uh incredible dive moment for me was uh doing the risco live broadcasts that we do for mm. ccmi just because it was it's just a really cool project honestly like i i know i've i've been involved with it and but it, it never gets old it's just it's just awesome like we get to have a, f a full face mask which is a 
cool different piece of equipment to be using as well when you're scuba diving like I really enjoyed learning how to use it um but getting to do the the world ocean day special broadcast which is like in the cinemas in Kamana Bay, we had over 500 kids booked into a Kamana Bay cinema. And then seeing like a picture of me in a full face mask, talking to students live underwater, answering, the, answering their questions, and seeing a picture of a cinema room full of kids, uh, like watching, that was just, that was just awesome. I mean, I obviously it was super stressful and like nerve wracking because you're like talking live underwater and I will say it looks super easy, but it is so difficult to manage your buoyancy when you have this huge like pocket of air on your face. And then every time you're talking, it like messes up your buoyancy and you've got to get through your sentence without breathing because it makes too much noise. Oh, <laughs> it is challenging, but it was it was just amazing when I when I saw that picture and for me that was also like a a dream come true because growing up I like loved David Attenborough as like who didn't and always kind of dreamed of doing that so for me it felt like a huge like life goal and achievement and uh I did a stupid little dance after the broadcast was cut and we weren't live but we had to all be quiet because they're like playing the exit b-roll little fun fact for anyone that does watch our Risco Live broadcasts. I like took off my fins and took all the air out of my BCD uh, and did this little dance that uh, I don't know if you've ever seen me. I, I do this one dance to Jerusalem on the bars a lot. It's like a, a classic thing of Little Cayman, you dance on the bar. But uh, after the Risco Live thing, I, I did that after we cut. And that was like a, a really cool moment of one, the relief that We'd got through four live broadcasts, which I'm sure you can imagine, underwater, live television. It's it's stressful. Uh, so one relief of that and two just like kind of having fun after a really cool moment. So that, that's my other uh, amazing dive experience. I am jealous and I hope one day to get to experience that because that is... It sounds really incredible. What a, a like David Attenborough, like a, like a a movie star moment. Yeah, my my parents cried a lot and were super harsh and told me afterwards. So, after all of these crazy cool dives and all of your amazing experiences at Cumbers, what is your favorite marine organism? Uh, it's it's hard because it used to be Spotted Eagle Ray. But that is now the company I work for's logo, so I feel like you can't be my favorite marine creature anymore. Uh, but they are just amazing. Every time I see them, I could spend forever watching them. But my my favorite fish is the sharp nose puffer because they're just adorable. And it was actually one of the first kind of species I kind of noticed when I went diving in Grand. I just saw this like tiny pea sized one that's like little pectoral fins were going like crazy so they just look like tiny little hummingbird kind of things uh because they're not really moving anywhere but their fins are moving like crazy um so yeah I just I just love them because they're really cute that's fair but the Caribbean ones I feel like the Indo-Pacific one doesn't look as cute um I don't know I saw a pretty cute one the other day they have like yellow and black spots and they were inside that museum of underwater art that we were in and i was like oh they're like more colorful versions of the ones we saw in florida they're not as friendly i did watch puff though which is about the sharp nose puffers in the indian yeah. pacific and i was like ah oh, I, I do like it but I, i'm loyal to my, my my caribbean one i was gonna ask you if you had seen that 
Oh yeah, like five times. <laughs> it is so good. I cried. Also, I'm loyal to the Caribbean ones until I get to the Pacific, and then I will be loyal to the Pacific. I'm just loyal to whatever fish are in front of me. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's that's how I am too. <sighs> okay. What is your favorite dive boat snack or the one thing you crave after diving? When I was in uh, Grand and I was uh, teaching and lab teching at a school, I would literally choose where I went diving because of the restaurant that was like attached to the dive shop. Uh, so there, there's a lot of good options. Um, <laughs> but basically just calories. Like I want chips and cheese and pizza and like my body just wants all the worst food yeah. basically uh, to just get mm-hmm. energy. <laughs> I saw a funny Instagram reel the other day and it was like divers lose 700 to blah 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 calories every time they dive and then we eat it all back. Yeah, pretty it's, much. It's very misleading though because I fully believed I was burning 700 calories every dive and then I realized that's if you're doing cold water diving and if you're uh, doing cold uh, water diving it's like nothing. Gotcha. I was very disappointed by that. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, cool. At the top of the episode, we asked how you got into the water. So we're going to close it out with asking you what keeps you coming back after all this time. I just love the ocean in the Caribbean, not in the northeast of England. (laughs) That's a whole different ocean. It's just, I feel like in some ways it like resets me. Like if I'm having a bad day or whatever, if I go swim in the ocean or paddleboard, or scuba dive, or free dive, or just even taking a beach walk. I feel like it's just being in the environment, and I it just it's like going into a whole other world as when as well when you're like diving or free diving. It it feels like you're just I don't know, it's kind of out of this world. It's just amazing. Yeah, I, I don't know. It, it keeps bringing me back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we agree. We we tend to yeah. agree. well thank you so much for joining us and teaching us all the new things and sharing your story with everyone today yeah thanks for coming on Vic thanks for having me I really enjoyed it thanks so much for listening to this week's episode don't forget to head on over to our website where you can find information on submitting your great stories for our fish tales episodes those will come out about once a month and you can find the form to submit your stories online Our website is under titleteaseapparel.com. There's a little header at the top that says to dive for a podcast. And if you hit that link, we also have merch for sale. And you can also find us on Instagram at to dive for podcast and on Facebook as well. Don't forget to like and follow and share with your friends. See you guys next week. Bye. So, you know, if you listen to the end of our episode every week, you get a fish fact. And this week's fish fact is brought to you by our special guest, Vic.
A really cool fact about uh, the Cayman Islands is we have one of the best conservation success stories uh, for the Nassau grouper species. Uh, so the Nassau grouper forms these large spawning aggregations uh, once a year where all the fish from the area come into this giant mass of fish that are swimming around each other. Uh, and this obviously is perfect for overfishing, but uh, the Cayman Islands put really good protection in place. Uh, and so their numbers went right down to almost, uh, I think, around a thousand in these NASA group. The only spawning aggregation that was left, there used to be five around the island, but now there's just one. Uh, but this year it went up to 10,000 fish again at the spawning aggregation. So they have great conservation success, which is really awesome.